Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today is the return of my colleague, Rhonda V. McGee, to the Meta Hour podcast. Rhonda is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and has spent more than 20 years exploring the intersections of anti-racist education, social justice, and contemplative practices. A fellow of the Minds and Life Institute, Rhonda is a global keynote speaker, mindfulness teacher, practice innovator, storyteller, and thought leader on integrating mindfulness into higher education, law, and social justice. She has served as an advisor to a range of leading mindfulness-based professional development organizations, including the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness, the Brown Mindfulness Center, the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, and the Center for Contemplative Minds in Society. Her award-winning book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness was released in hardcover in 2019, and the paperback edition has just come out in 2021. Welcome back, Rhonda. Hello. It's so wonderful to be with you, as always, Sharon. I'm so happy to hear your voice. For everyone listening, this is our third attempt after being thwarted by the internet gods. She's here and I'm here. It's so great. Thank you so much for joining me today. And it's so wonderful that your book is now available in paperback and feels yeah. like so much has changed since you were last on the podcast, which was actually 2018. Mm-hmm. So where are you recording from today? I'm recording from San Francisco, my home here. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day. So we've, we've had some rains which we, of course, very much needed. But today it's, you know, a peerless sky. And I'm just happy to be here with you. And thank you. And speaking of uh, beautiful scenes, I want to thank you so much for posting. What you do post on social media sometimes it's just beautiful flowers. Yeah. Oh, thank just you. Just these things are like, oh, that's so nice to see, you know. Right. I love it. I, you know, thank you so much. I mean, that's one of my kinds of practices Oh, you know, walking in nature and really seeing, so, you know, these beautiful, very simple things that if we, you know, if we are lucky and we pause, we can see around yeah. us. So thank yeah. you for naming that. Yeah, no, it's it's really great. And especially, you know, on those uh, media where it can be so, like, mm-hmm. awful. <laughs> and then there's this beautiful flower that Rhonda posted and she wants to share. It's yes. so great. Oh, thank you, my dear. So I have been rereading your book, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I want to say one of the things I appreciate the most about it is that it's a, a direct refutation of the kind of assumption that people make that mindfulness is something that makes you kind of passive. Yes. And, you know, I think that assumption is natural given just the language we use in defining it. And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's not accurate, but it just, leads itself, I think, to a lot of misconception, like mindfulness Mm -hmm. is being aware without judgment. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> no, or mindfulness means accepting things the way that they are. And, right. You know, they may both be true, but also misleading. Oh, yes, exactly. They're true and not the whole story, I guess. Like so many things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so, and that's such an important contribution to the whole field because um, it's so destructive an assumption in the end, you know, about. Mm-hmm. where one thinks um, the whole practice can go and, and yes. what it means. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially, again, we are, I, I mean, I, I think I understand how it came to be that we tend to over, I think, emphasize the very individual, maybe the inner dimensions of mindfulness, the invitation to, you know, become more aware of our habit mind Um you know, the way in which our own response, reactions, you know, to what happens in our life provokes us to attach or push away or stay in a fog of confusion. I mean, there are many important foundational, I think, you know, ways that our inner practices really do, for me, just kind of open up a lively relationship with all that is also present in terms of, you know, our inner to outer and then outer um, experience, the kind of way in which our, you know, our experience of any moment is comprised of the inner dimension, the way in which what we call inner is in always in relationship with what we call outer and really the fully outer aspects, all of which turns out, according to my friends who are early Buddhist scholars, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, the Buddha was also concerned with. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's so interesting. It actually reminded me of, um, I started my meditation practice in Bodh Gaya, India, mm-hmm. which is a town that's grown up around the descendant of the tree. They mm-hmm. say that the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. And um, in those days, especially, it was just like a little village and, uh, we were staying in the Burmese temple, which was a little bit outside of town, along mm-hmm. this dry riverbed. And town was just like the tree and the temple around it and yeah. a few chai shops. And um, mm-hmm. there was a very wealthy landowner who had a like a farm there. And he had an elephant, which was a kind of a mark of his you know status in, mm-hmm. in the world. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember one day somebody asking my... Uh, one of my teachers is my name, Manindra. Uh, if I'm walking from the Burmese temple along that road into town and I see the elephant coming toward me, do I get out of the way or do I notice mindfully, oh, there's an elephant <laughs> coming toward me? Mm-hmm. I remember the look on Manindra's face and he was like, I get out of the way, you know? And like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, right. So, it's There's not a role to- for discernment and wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 So, yeah. I mean, it, again, I, especially I think to you now, and maybe this has been true to some extent, is maybe it's always true to some extent, but we are, you know, tempted to kind of be drawn to the almost transcendental benefits of, of meditation, right? They can help us completely, you know, sort of transcend different di- and, you know, difficult everyday realities. So I, I, I understand the 
the way that um, these practices can, uh, in a certain sense, invite us to kind of want to, you know, find in this practice is a kind of a spa-like shelter from the difficulties mm-hmm. of our everyday engagements. And again, at the same time, as your story just helps us open up to, there can be a, a kind of a descent into a kind of unwise um, way of being insofar as, you know, we're, we're human beings in a world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we can just as easily find that these, if we're not really careful and really just committed to really just being awake in the reality of the fold of realities of our lives, we, we can find ourselves using the practices to avoid um, engagement with what's really also here. And so I do think there is this call always to be very courageously willing to discern what's called for and, you know, not to pick and choose so much Mm -hmm. what it is that we're uh, responding to, but really opening up. And if it's here, find a way to relate in some intentional, wise and skillful fashion to what is present. That's wonderful. And I I was hoping that we could um, go over some of the themes in your book and almost by my uh, asking you about terms that you use. Oh yeah. Um, to begin with, this this term "racialized bodies," um, yeah. which is really interesting. It, it reminded me um, of Joseph Goldstein and I went to South Africa to teach way back in like the apartheid era. Mm-hmm. And it was Joseph's second or third trip. It was my first trip and only trip, mm-hmm. and it was you know in so many ways a completely bizarre reality. Obviously. Yeah. And, yeah, and yet you know the the land almost like was calling people. You know, there was I could see the passion and the, mm. the attachment and the craziness of the structure. But while we were there, um, I think it was Japanese people were declared white, mm-hmm. and obviously that was for economic reasons of trade mm-hmm. or whatever. But mm-hmm. I remember looking at Joseph and I was like so puzzled, like really. Right. You know, like, <laughs> how did that happen? Right, you know? right, 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 right. So what do you mean by racialized bodies? Yeah. Wow. So that's a very um, interesting just sort of example from your experience of, like, being in a world at a moment where you kind of see in real time um, the <laughs> the very lively uh, involvement uh, that human beings have with creating these ideas of of what race means mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and attaching ways of you know kind of conceptualizing it to to to, to bodies um, and so uh, you know I think when I think of when I use that term racialized bodies it is meant to help us see the active engagement the way that um, human beings um, are creating, these notions of race and that, and that they are subject to change, right? If whatever we construct and create uh, in our human beingness, we can deconstruct or decreate, if you will, uncreate, if you will, or we can change. And so, you know, to be in a place in a particular context in which um, the society is, you know, deeming 
Japanese heritage people white certainly can seem strange from the places and spaces where you and I, Sharon, have been formed in the United States, in the context mm-hmm. of the United States, where you know people who are um, of Japanese heritage uh, or Japanese-American heritage have been historically racialized as non-white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so racializing then turns out, I mean, you know, I think the, the languages I use comes from my training in sociology, but also just, you know, research and looking at this concept as it's played out social psychologically um, and, and through the lens of our practices. So bringing all of these different ways of knowing, uh, including my own experience to bear. And it leaves me very, very aware of race as a kind of a social, cultural, economic, legal construction, not as a thing that we find in nature. It's not Mm -hmm. a biological concept, even though we turn to biological markers like skin color and eye, you know, the sort of notions we have about um, eyelids and hair texture. We turn to what we call phenotype, these physical characteristics to kind of help us know the categories. But the the designations that we make, the categories that we actually form are, you know, over what we are forming in our social world. And looking historically, to bring that discipline in, you know, we can see points along the, the sort of cultural and, and uh, the, the various sort of context-driven moments where race is being formed. So this, so racialization is just meant to help us come to some awareness that though we may have been taught that, you know, that there, that humankind is, can be divided into, you know, five or six different categories uh, through this sort of what I would call pseudoscience of race, right? This idea that it's a kind of a natural marker. Actually, you know, what we call race is something that is constructed in different times and places, has been, right? Um, definitely something called race was particularly important to the justification of the system of political economics that formed slavery and colonialism. And so, um, we see the relationship between these human temptations to categorize human bodies mm-hmm. and then rank order them and the, then use those categories as a justification for you know, the systems that are running our society, systems of um, economic exploitation, of um, the distribution of resources uh, from access to political rights to access to health care, housing, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, for me... It's really just a place for reflection because I think we've we've been taught a certain kind of big lie around mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. of race, a really big lie that it's just like, you know, it's just a natural thing. We can we can we can look now to twenty three and Me or Ancestry just to name one of many different ways that we're getting a new invitation to sort of seize these sort of biological ways of thinking about race. When um, what's also readily apparent, if we really look at it, and your story just gives us another purchase on it, is that we are living in worlds in different cultural contexts at different times in which the very common 
tendency among human beings across human societies to categorize individuals based on many different things. It could be gender, right, age. In the U.S. and different places, we add this idea of race to the mix. Mm-hmm. And then from that, those categories, we rank order and we re- distribute resources. And those things can change. But to think of it as racialized bodies is to say each of us in our own embodiments has been subjected to that process so that people think of us through the lenses of what we call race in our time. And also that we, in ways that are often not so obvious, think of others and participate in systems that are producing the notion of differently racialized bodies um, around us. It's really interesting because Mm -hmm. I also remember learning uh, at some point not too long ago about attribution bias, you know, and what that means, and Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically, as far as I understand it, that if we see somebody we consider like us, you know, part of our sense of belonging, and they do something unethical, they do something wrong, we think, oh, well, they got in with a bad crowd or they made a mistake, you know, they can change. Whereas if we see somebody we have declared as the other doing something unethical, it's like flawed character, you know, it's innate to their being. They're like terrible person and it's unchangeable. It's irrefutable. And, and so then when I think about somebody, you know, Japanese businessman in apartheid era, South Africa Mm -hmm. gets a new status. How long does it take before, you know, (laughs) we switch that like, Oh, did something wrong? Well, you know, they got the wrong crowd. Oh, well, that's an interesting, you know, observation and and question or, you know, reflection too, just because implicit in that is is an understanding number, you know, number, a couple of different things. One that, Again, part of what we're up against, if you will, these are sort of social psychological dynamics, mm-hmm. ways that the brain works, right? That are, you know, not entirely, let's just say, subject to our immediate control, uh-huh. <laughs> right? So, the, the, you know, the very many different ways that our minds are biased, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the attributions, in terms of negativity biases, right? There, there's all confirmation biases. There are all kinds of ways that our mind minds sort of work um, to try to get out in front of uncertainty and, mm-hmm. you know, try um, what we think of as perceiving the world. But it, again, we're learning how much of that is we're creating the world, uh, even in these unintended ways by these biases that we carry. Um, so, so it's partly humbling for me to recognize that, you know, when we move to the world and we're trying to see things clearly and what with our practices and our efforts to sort of become more aware, mm-hmm. you know, we are doing our best, but we, 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 we got these bodies and these brains in a world and in a culture that is constantly, you know, giving us new input, new information that we're working with. So we have our intentions drawn from, for me and for many others on this path and on the, probably in our, in the, you know, the hearing of our voices, we have intentions about how we want to be in the world, how we want to act, what we want to do. And those are really important. And, you know, again, it's humbling to see the research that helps Mm -hmm. us see Mm -hmm. there's often a gap between our intentions on the one hand and what we do and what um, what we are learning when we look at 
um, you know, the science of bias is, you know, how, how the way that we experience that gap between intentions and actions or intentions and behavior, you know, it's, it, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's not something that we can overcome simply by, you know, deciding we want to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes time. Again, back to your question, like, what, you know, at what point do we start to associate? Well, there's a new, there's a new way of thinking about, you know, Japanese folks in this place. Mm-hmm. They are now to be considered white. Well, at what point does the, does the, the mind catch up to right. this new right. idea that we have? And it, it, it does not happen overnight. You know, um, there's clear evidence, right? If we're, again, curious about all of this, this, the researchers around bias give us a lot of pause for, let's say, humility mm-hmm. around thinking that all we have to do is sort of think ourselves bias-free. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's more challenging than that, uh, and which is why, for me, as you know, compassion mm-hmm. and kind of intentionality that I've already alluded to are really, really important. The kind of compassion that recognizes that we're we're often suffering, even as we're trying to minimize our own suffering, we're often causing suffering, mm-hmm. even though we may intending not to be. And so to bring a kind of compassion to all of this is, I think, really, really important. Yeah, I was just talking to Amishi Ja, who's a mutual mm-hmm. friend and yes. neuroscientist, and yes. uh, about mindfulness and implicit bias, trying mm-hmm. to understand it. And uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, and and it, it's complex to understand. Yes. Like at one point, she said to me, um, "You know, it it seems that loving kindness meditation, as a methodology of meditation, may have a more direct effect on implicit bias than mindfulness." And I was trying to work mm-hmm. that out because, in my mind, I guess I assumed, you know, mm-hmm. that. Uh, if I could but see the assumption coming up in my mind, it would dispel it. Right. You know, and apparently that's not true. Something <laughs> else has to happen. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, a very closely held assumption of mine. Yeah. But that's all it would take is, is somehow seeing, oh, I, I was assuming that person didn't belong here, you know, mm-hmm. the way they looked or something like that. And, right, 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 right. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, the other side of it, though, is that, I mean, she said that a lot of the studies – that she knew of um, would expose somebody or, or, you know, people would have like 15 minutes of mindfulness training. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't remember the first 15 minutes of my practice. <laughs> you know? right. like, who remembers? Like <laughs> it takes longer than 15 minutes. So I'm not totally convinced yet. Although of course yeah. I have such a, a bias toward loving kindness practice, but nonetheless, <laughs> right. you know, right, right, right. Right. Obviously, there is a a way that these are distinct practices, mm-hmm. um, but you know, also, um, what we mean by mindfulness is varied. You know, and mm-hmm. for many of us, there is. I I like to think inherently, but I'm not so sure that's true. But but for me, mindfulness is inherently a kind of loving kindness practice mm-hmm. insofar mm-hmm. as right it's founded in um kind of willingness to be present that is held in kind of a loving embrace of what arises mm-hmm. right and so 
Yes, they are distinct modes of practice, certainly. Um, and I think sometimes <laughs> we can, you know, the, the, at a certain point they start to Mm-hmm. Enter they they enter R in a way I hope if we're doing yeah. it right <laughs> yeah yeah no, I'm sure that's true in fact another um, phrase that you know I took from your book when you talk about racial justice uh, you define it as taking action against racism and towards liberation inspired mm-hmm. by love of all humanity yeah including actions at the personal interpersonal and collective levels so of course there was. Yeah very moved by the inspired by love of all humanity. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, I mean, to me, that's really what it's actually all about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, all of this, you know, any conversation in which we turn toward race or in, in any work that we do to try to minimize, you know, racism is personally for me anyway, founded in, in this kind of awareness that we all kind of deserve so much better. You know, we, you know, as I say toward the end of my book, really, we've all suffered enough around this Mm. idea of, you know, race that has been used to support separation, um, bounded, compassion, right? Um, the notion that, you know, that type of, those types of people somehow, you know, don't feel pain the way we do, um, don't deserve the same kinds of opportunities and resources and won't make as good of them as we might. I mean, you know, when we talk about this concept of racism, I mean, I like to sort of try and bring it home to what are we really talking about? We're talking about just ways that we've justified in a way outsourcing the suffering that is um, a consequence of the ways we've organized our societies and made it natural and normal for it to be uh, unevenly distributed and uh, overly, um, uh, you know, sort of associated with the targeted, racialized, subordinate, right? So, you know, that's what segregation was about. That's what enslavement was about. That's what, you know, the different forms of colonial oppressions are about. Like, we come up with all of these justifications to just make natural and normal human suffering um, that those people have that we are protected from, mm-hmm. you know? And once you come to a sense of, the, you know, a kind of a deep sense that we all in a certain sense, belong on this planet Earth, this one planet that every human being that's ever lived has shared <laughs> with us and that we are all sharing right here, right now, wherever we are, as long as we breathe. You know, to me, it's so, somehow seems to be so that we wouldn't be here if we didn't already all belong. And um, there actually are enough really resources for us if we just figure out how to use them well together um, again, or else we wouldn't all be here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, all of the machinations and pain and suffering around who belongs and who doesn't, who belongs where and who doesn't, where, the lines we draw, which, you know, those who have been privileged to travel into space often come back and tell us, like, whew, it's just one planet. 
Like I, there are no lines out there. You know, it's like there's a perspective that can arise from the practice that gets us there. But it's a lot of undoing, right? It, it, it requires a willingness, a courageous willingness to kind of let all of the constructedness that holds in place us and them and who belongs and who doesn't, who belongs where, lot of over-constructedness that we've inherited and that we, you know, we do. I'm a law professor, so I know our, my mm-hmm. own discipline, law and academia, whew, they are all over, you know, overly constructing the world that maintains, you know, us-ing and theming and who belongs mm-hmm. where. And so there is a kind of a call for a certain kind of courageous to let certain things fall apart, to, to, to be able to feel our way into the inherent interconnectedness and one human familyness mm-hmm. <laughs> that's at the core of all of this. Um, and then from that place, ideally, or from, you know, the way in which we can touch into that, if we get disconnected from it, as we will, as we go through the world, that's constantly reinforcing separation, using and nimming. But if we can reconnect to that, you know, yeah, from that place, we can be inspired to, you know, really radically, uh, re-engage in ways that hold some awareness that actually we might talk about race, we might talk about projects of minimizing racism, but we know that um, to talk about those things, to do the work of repairing what we've inherited is not the whole story, right? We are, you know, there's a, there's much more to who we are and how we are together mm-hmm. than these aspects, so it's like, can we hold radical multiple aspects of reality in place? And I think that helps with the challenge, which is to both address racism on the one hand, but not get stuck in the idea that race is really real. And we really are these separate beings and bodies that are so different that you can never understand me and I can never understand. I mean, all of the ways that we sometimes are, you know, the baits that mm-hmm. we're sometimes tempted to take when we do this work. You know, I was so moved again um, by the story uh, which you tell early on in the book about your teenage boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes I describe myself on on Zoom as like the nosiest person on Zoom. I'm always looking at people's bookshelves and things like that. <laughs> yes. Did you ever? I'm now going to display it. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you ever get in touch with him as an adult, or do you know yeah. what happened to him? Yes. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Well, we, we stayed in touch for some time. I mean, I didn't share this in the book. Um, and I don't know if we shared in our prior conversations together, but you know, after that incident, my family actually sort of took him in for a little bit. Oh, okay. So maybe we should say what happened. You had a yeah. boyfriend oh, yeah. who was white. Right. A boyfriend who was, who was white, whose, whose father in particular objected to our relationship so much that he, you know, this, his beloved son became, you know, just sort of the family um, problem. And so he was actually kind of given an ultimatum that he should break up with me or else he'd have to leave. And, you know, my, I call him Jake in the book, Jake being, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm teenage man chose to, of course, leave. <laughs> so, so um, in a way, right, that meant he was kind of at, threatened with homelessness by choosing to stay in this relationship with me. And my family actually took him in. He slept 
kind of on a couch in our, we didn't have an extra room. We didn't have a guest house, but he slept on the couch in our living room um, for some time. Or he sometimes would sleep in the car, you know, if he didn't want to sleep there. Mm -hmm. So there there really was. He really did not have some other place to go, Mm -hmm. but we did try to help in that way. My parents totally um, opened the door to him in that way. And so we did, we did stay in touch uh, um, off and on, you know, he became um, an officer in the Air Force Mm. and yeah, and, you know, went to college while in the Air Force and um, contacted me when he was elevated, I think, to captain to let me know that he, in the speech that he gave, acknowledging his promotion, named, you know, that there had been this person he cared about at a young age who saw potential in him who when his family for example believed he didn't need college he didn't need to go for mm-hmm. all these things and he basically was really naming that I was that person who helped him mm-hmm. inspire him to see his own potential so again there's so many ways that um that if we really look at a story like this you know, we can um, see that the narratives that we're given about who we are and how we can impact each other are really only ever just one part of the story. And the invitation of my work, I hope, is for all of us to really look and look again at what we have seen and what we might see if we open our eyes more clearly to uh, all the ways that you know, we are tempted to to be okay with just part of the story around race and racism and it, all of its, you know, painful consequences, its limitations on all of us, um, the ways it separates us more than it, you know, more than we deserve. We deserve the, the kind of loving friendship of other human beings of all different backgrounds. And yet, you know, again, these ideologies, these customs, these um, you know, ways that are communities, um, maybe well-intended on some level. They may be thinking they're somehow protecting us somehow. But, you know, my story certainly, you know, I look at the story that I share in the book and the, the longer story of how, yeah, I know that we stayed in contact. We, we've, we've not been in direct conf- contact in recent years, but I know that he ended up marrying, married a actually a Japanese heritage mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as a consequence of having been stationed um, in Japan for some period. And, you know, they have a family. And so, yeah. Um, but I, but the, what, what touches my heart too is knowing that he's kind of has named publicly how our relationship was pivotal in helping him see a path that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to see for his own, you know, development and um, thriving. That's, I'm really relieved. <laughs> I was just kind of stuck there for a little while. Yeah. Like, oh, I hope he's okay. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you keep, of course, his family somehow, he repaired some in some way with his pa- yeah. family, and, you know, all of that as, as families will do. Um, yeah. So it was a, a painful moment, but we, you know, we, as, as we all know, we get through these moments, you know, and we survive somehow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's so interesting because, um, accessing our own pain and making something of it seems so important yes. and yet it's so difficult. 
you know, one of the ways we develop empathy seems to be based on being open to our own painful experience because we won't be able to resonate with the apparent pain of somebody else if we're just blocked and cut off from feeling our own pain. So even that's what I always tell people in meditation, like even if it seems useless, you know, to be Mm -hmm. sitting there, it's (laughs) not, it's really not. Um, Yes. It really does open us. That's such an important point too. Because I hear that. I hear, of course, we, we as we are out and about and offering these opportunities for people to reflect and meditate and sit in some measure with what can be painful and difficult. I, yeah, I too. I remember I'm thinking of a, a session I had where, you know, a white um, bodied, white racialized man, um, cisgender uh, man had... Um, yeah, it was just sort of like, I don't get it. I don't see the purpose of this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is completely not helpful, you know, not helpful. And, you know, I think that it's not, it's, it's, it's not only hard um, and, and, and people can be resistant to it. Um, but I think that kind of resistance is also something that our cultures sometimes help reinforce. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, there is a, so, yeah, and there's research actually that I was, I'm looking to see fully published that I just recently heard, learned about looking at, you know, what gets in the way of compassion. And um, because sometimes we are tempted to think, well, you just find, you know, Sharon Salzberg and you find these practices and we can cultivate it. But as you're pointing to in your reflections here, you know, cultivating empathy, that ability to feel or, you know, you know sort of have some emotional resonance with the suffering of another person. A cognitive understanding of, you know, em- empathy or, that allows us to take the cognitive perspective, the mental perspective of another, of another person. You know, these things are not easy. And then from that place of some under, emotional resonance or understanding to then take action, which is how we tend to think of what we mean by compassion, from that place of understanding what another's going through to be willing to actually do something to alleviate it. You know, it's, it is not easy. And, you know, some people actively resist it. And mm-hmm. yeah, so understanding that is also kind of a bracing, <laughs> you know, uh, gives us a little bit of humility as we go through the world. It's like, we know we're going to offer these practices and these opportunities. And we can pre- predict that a percentage of people will find that it's just too much, you know, and um, that doesn't mean it'll be too much forever. That doesn't mean, you know, there isn't a way. But to be aware that, you know, it's not all puppets and rainbows out there mm-hmm. in the world of offering uh, opportunities to cultivate empathy and compassion. There are ways that people resist getting in touch with their own pain. We, we resist getting in touch with our own pain, making space for that. We can, if, even if we open up to that, we can you know, maybe just want to open up to the pain and suffering of people who quote unquote look like us or in our circle of limited circle of connection and concern. So um, actually cultivating the capacity to um, understand another, the suffering that another person might be going through, the pain of another mm-hmm. person's experience and and being willing from that place to, to act, to alleviate it. You know, it, it may come more easily to some of us than to others. 
and really, I think where the research is is starting to open up, we're starting to look more at well, what can get in the way and what can we do to work more skillfully with those who are really coming up against the barriers to feeling for each other, to having empathy for each other's suffering, other human beings suffering, and um, to taking compassion and action to alleviate it. It's really beautiful, and there's so many layers to that because there are people certainly we we both know, mm-hmm. I'm sure, who may uh, do that really difficult thing in the beginning. I want to go back to that in a second, you know, mm-hmm. feeling their own pain, recognizing the pain in others. But yeah. the idea, especially of collective action, which, you know, I mentioned in that definition, yes. Yes. is very difficult to come to sometimes. You know, like, what does that mean? It doesn't feel like I could ever do enough. It doesn't feel like... Mm-hmm. I know the right thing to do and yes. I feel kind of alone or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And all of that is, you know, I think par for this kind of course. I do think, um, you know, I keep coming back to the word humility today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think, again, you know, part of our cultural context in the West and in the 21st century, at you know, when... We're sort of, you know, in a mastery world, in a peak mm-hmm. world. We want everything to be just working so well, you know, with 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 our intentions being so aligned and our values being, you know, when we practice, we want to see some results. Um, but the truth is, I think, you know, what I've what I'm learning in this moment, right, this broad historical moment, where we're seeing, um, you know, all of these interlocking you know, invitations to understand that the world as we know it is radically changing. Mm -hmm. You know, the planet is changing in terms of climate. Um, The threats to public health are, you know, intensifying and um, migration patterns are, 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 you know, are disrupting, if you will, our settled expectations of who's where on the planet. And then, of course, we're able to see all this in real time in ways that we we weren't able to short blink of an eye ago because of the technological revolution that we're in the midst of. All of these these changes are not easy for the human body to kind of really grok, if you will, take in, like be with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, the idea that we can, through our practices, compassion practices, loving kindness practices, mindfulness practices, um, engage in the personal, interpersonal, and collective or systemic aspects of justice, of righting the wrongs of these oppressive systems. I think, I feel, I believe there has to be some truth to that. I look to figures in history Mm -hmm. to give me some support. I look to, you know, the beautiful work that's being done by activists today to give me some support because I see more and more the integration of, you know, again, looking at history, looking at, you know, folks from, you know, Gandhi and before through Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, to those who are at the forefront of different movements, Black Lives Matter right now and others. Um, you know, people, we do see uh, how important embodied practices for self-care, for caring for each other as we go, um, have been to helping sustain the effort to organize and, and stay in these um, social movements. Um, and 
and yet, you know, no, these changes don't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we do the best we can. And this is why for me, you know, all of what we might try to do needs to be really deeply grounded in that deep envelope of love and loving kindness that can enable us to recognize, um, you know, when we are kind of a little bit hyper-focused on a particular sense of what the just outcome might look like and therefore in despair when something else shows up. Um, In other words, whatever it is that we might be working toward as collectives that we think might minimize harm, if we can remember that none of us ever knows the whole truth or can, Mm -hmm. right? And and just kind of... um, never lose sight of the joy of being alive as we do whatever we might do um, that, you know, can always only ever be partial and provisional um, and the best we can for now. In other words, there's this, to me, mindfulness, what we call mindfulness, you know, which I think of as these practices for being present with reality, but also that way of being that is about, you know, equanimity and really fundamentally recognizing the radical impermanence of every moment and that whatever time we have on the planet to try to make a difference, we don't have forever and we don't know how long we have. So meet it with love, meet Mm -hmm. the moment with love and do what you can with love. And then also just sort of let go because we never know, we never really know the full consequences of anything we do, good or bad. So it's just, uh, to me, mindfulness is the only, it's like, operating instructions for trying (laughs) to make the most of the moments that we have, but with humility all the way. That's fantastic. Um, Maybe we can just do uh, one more, and then I'm going to ask you if you would lead us in a sitting. So uh, almost the thesis of of your book is color insight versus color blindness. Mm Mm-hmm. So maybe if you could speak about that for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Right. So, and I've been thinking about that too, since the book came out and working with many people, you know, I think of, I should say this idea of color insight, you know, came to me while I was actually sitting in meditation and reflecting on, you know, what exactly um, these practices offer us as we try to understand race and racism more effectively. And, um, you know, in some sense, I think of color insight as an invitation to really have a counterpoint to color blindness in, in so far as color blindness can get in the way of recognizing when we do need to address race and racism. Mm -hmm. And because color blindness is its own kind of complex metaphor, right? On the one hand, it can be about letting go of a hyper-focus on race and um, seeing our common humanity and what, in a certain sense, could be more beautiful than that. Uh, So I understand some of the underlying, you know, kind of the push and pull toward and the kind of um, rhetorical and moral power, in a way, of this idea of colorblindness. The trouble is that um, adopting colorblindness as an ideal 
in and of itself doesn't disrupt the reality, the sort of social psychological reality of being in a racialized body and being in racial, mm-hmm. um, you know, dynamics in the social world. <laughs> so race still matters. Racism is still operating, even as we try to be colorblind. Mm-hmm. So I think it really is an invitation to, you know, hold with that kind of, again, that robustness that mindfulness gives us to hold multiple complex reality, the, a, a notion of colorblindness that understands, yeah, of course, Ideally, we who are practicing mindfulness and awareness want to be able to sort of let go of a hyper focus on race and, you know, be in touch with our warm hearts and loving uh, common humanity in ways that are not disrupted by um, my assumptions about you because you happen to be from a differently racialized experience or your assumptions about me. So in that respect, you know, totally with colorblindness, if that's what we want to call it. But I tend to call that really, I'm really aiming for a more of an awareness Mm -hmm. of the role that race and racism play in our lives. And so color insight is about seeing race and racism through the lens of the insight that our practices Mm -hmm. give us, you know, right? This thing called race is impermanent, but it is a factor. It is Mm -hmm. something to see when it's coming up, but also to let go when we no longer need to be, um, we're no longer in um, direct, Mm -hmm. you know, kind Mm -hmm. of engagement with it. And it is an invitation to stay open to the work of addressing race and racism when it arises, as opposed to, right, this is a disruption of the typical narrative that we inherit in the U.S. of we do some work around race, we bring a big lawsuit, we have a big movement and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Right. We, right. But, but of course, my seeing this as part of our mindfulness practice, then we see that, oh, well, you know, race and racism are features of what it means to live in a social world where race matters. So we are ongoingly open to learning mm-hmm. how race might be relevant and to doing the work to disrupt its, you know, deleterious, harmful consequences. Mm-hmm. So that's what color insight is meant to engage and in, in this moment where now many of us are thinking about, you know, anti-racism, mm-hmm. multiculturalism, you know, I think, you know, and colorblindness, there are these often these different models, if you will, for how for, for what the good, the ideal is around working with um, and minimizing racism or upending racism. To me, I think I've become more and more just aware that there is no one way. There is no one way to be an anti-racist. There's no one way to work toward racial justice. You know, it is about constantly, ongoingly seeing, actually, the inputs to race and racism, like just looking at the roots. Mm -hmm. And that's why mindfulness and compassion are, to me, such beautiful inner and outer technologies, if you will, for really... Um, disrupting race and racism as it rises and falls in us and in between us, but then helping us to do the work, ideally, of changing systems that are, are really um, the drivers, I think, of, right? By systems, I mean segregation in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in the way we think about who is a right candidate for voting. We really need to change those things that really 
are the external drivers, if you will, mm-hmm. keep throwing us back into a world where we need to now, once again, turn toward minimizing the effects of racism. So we need to do that work. But if we can do it in a way that also keeps us aware that this is just a, you know, one of these phantom yeah. <laughs> aspects of how we've been given to, you know, delude ourselves about reality. And so constantly waking up, even as we do the work, is what I think I'm inviting in the in the in the conversation about color insight. That's beautiful. So would you lead us in a short meditation just before we close? Yes. Thank you so much. And really thank you, my dear friend, for this um, beautiful conversation about these rich and important matters. And I thank everyone who's taken the time uh, to be with us, listening to our voices here. And what I'd invite is just to pause right where we are. I happen to have a bell here, but I actually think if you're in this conversation and you've been with us to this point, there's already some sort of a bell (laughs) that's already gone off that has helped underscore for you the importance of these themes. But what I'll do is just ring this bell and invite us together in a bit of reflection. So allowing ourselves, wherever we are, to become aware of the body in this moment. Perhaps more aware of the sensations of being present wherever you are and however you happen to be, whether standing or sitting in a seated posture or lying down. However you happen to be right now, perhaps just gently allowing thoughts, sensations to subside and really allow attending to what it feels like to be in this conscious relationship, in the body, in relationship to the earth. So feeling the ground beneath you perhaps the points of contact between the body and the cushion, if you're sitting in a chair or on a meditation cushion. Feet on the floor, whether standing, sitting, or sitting cross-legged, just noticing the way in which we're being held right now by the earth. And as we breathe in and out, feeling the gentle way in which the breath is an opportunity to sense the liveliness in our bodies, but also to recognize the the kind of connectedness between this body and what we call the air, the earth, the earth's atmosphere. Gently noticing the way in which we are not really separate as we breathe in and out. These embodiments 
are enlivened by our being of this process of breathing. And in that sense, of the body we call the earth that we all share. So as we breathe in and out, noticing perhaps with a gentle scan, beginning with the feet up through the legs, the groin, the lower torso, upper torso, the region of the heart, noticing the quality of the heart in this moment as you breathe in and out, beautiful organs of breathing supporting you in this moment. Sensing if there's any place where you're feeling some of the resonances of this conversation, any difficult emotions or the sensations associated with them, complex experience, what we call sometimes anxiety, if any of that is arising right here, right now, see if you can bring a sense of loving embrace of your experience. Breathing in and breathing out. And if you're noticing tension in any place in the body, maybe the shoulders, just notice this is a region we often hold a little bit of extra stress. Perhaps on the next in-breath, noticing where wherever it might be in your body, feeling any tension. And on the next out-breath, inviting relaxation, Release, letting go, and ease right here, right now. This loving, easeful embrace of your experience right here, right now. As we breathe in and out, up through the crown of the head. Uh, Breathing out now, allowing the awareness to sweep down back through the entire body. Going back to the feet where we began. And now just resting in the spaciousness of your entire body and being in this moment with love. And from this place, perhaps on the next in-breath, sensing what is well within you, what is strong, what is at ease. And then on the next, on the next out-breath, Ah, relaxing and releasing and extending the wish for well-being and ease to all those near and far who may be suffering in this moment around the issues that we have been talking about. So in-breath, sensing what is well within you. Ah, Out-breath, extending the wish for well-being to include ourselves, but not only ourselves, Uh, May all those who are suffering from the consequences of a sense of being targeted for social identity-based violence, whether it be because of some notion of race, some notion that we don't belong, whether we've been stereotyped, whether we've been actually 
violently attacked, the invitation is to allow a sense of recognition that these harms and forms of suffering are around us in our communities, within our bodies, some of us, bringing love and kindness to that and extending the wish that the causes of these painful experiences be addressed in ourselves and in our world and that we be alleviated from the suffering. So breathing in and out the wish for our own well-being and the wish that the kinds of suffering that flow from notions of race and racism be alleviated in our communities, in our families, in our lives, now and through our lifetime of engagement with mindfulness and compassion practices. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be connected. May you be at ease from here. Thank you for your practice. Well, thank you so much for leading us and thank you for coming back on the podcast. It's always great to have some time together. I wish it could be longer and more <laughs> frequent. So we'll have to think about that. And yes. again, congratulations on the paperback release. It's a phenomenal book and it's really important. So to learn more about Rhonda and her work, you can visit her website at www.rondavmagee.com. It's R-H-O-N-D-A. V M A G E E dot com. And I'd suggest when you're on there, if she has it listed, check out where she posts on social media. Yeah. And you'll get some beautiful flower pictures and yes. sometimes some food. That's also really good. Yes. yes. So, um, and do get yourself a paperback copy of her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, wherever books are sold. So thank you to everyone listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.